Let us turn to Lord's Day 40 of our Catechism. And in order to always remind ourselves of the context of grace in which the commandments are given, let us just read for a moment the preamble to the law and the actual sixth commandment. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not murder. What does God require in the sixth commandment? I am not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, or gestures, and much less by deeds, whether personally or through another. Rather, I am to put away all desire of revenge. Moreover, I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself. Therefore, also, the government bears the sword to prevent murder. But does this commandment speak only of killing? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. Is it enough, then, that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. After the sermon, let us sing together hymn 50, the stanzas 2, 3, and 4. Beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, our attention is drawn to the Ten Commandments, the Ten Rules for Redeemed Living. It's always good to put it that way, the Rules for Redeemed Living. We are not busy learning rules, things we have to do before we are able to be God's children. But we are talking about rules the Lord has given to us because we are his children. As the Catechism also reminds us back in Lord's Day 32, the purpose of doing good works is that, first of all, God may be praised and glorified by us, that also in the second place we might be assured of our salvation, and in the third place that we may win our neighbor for Christ. Now, so far, the way the Catechism has worked through the various words of the covenant— learn the things that teach us how to live in relationship to God. But by this point, we are well into the second half of the commandments where we learn how, what our duties are with respect to our neighbor. And in particular, we are going to focus our attention on the sixth rule for redeemed living, you shall not murder. Now, put positively, because the commandments by the nature tend to be put negatively, but if we put it positively, it amounts to saying, protect and promote life in every way. And that we may grow in redeemed living, we will consider how to do this with respect to others, then to ourselves, and even our enemies. That's why the sermon is summed up in this way. And the sixth rule for redeemed life, our God calls us to promote and protect life in every way. And we consider how to do this with respect to ourselves, to, to others, ourselves, 
and our enemies. And so we begin how to do this with respect to others. Now, it will not require that we have to be exhorted to stop murdering people, for I suspect that no one in the congregation is guilty of that particular sin. At the same time, even though it may not be that extreme that people are guilty of physically murdering someone, it is possible that some are indeed guilty of physically harming other people. You know, it may require that some stop, some children, for example, stop beating up or bullying their siblings or their classmates. For sad to say, these things do happen. You know, in Christian families at times, I'm sure that among brothers and sisters, fist fights can break out. And even at school, sometimes you hear stories of children physically fighting with each other. And that happens in a Christian school. Sad. Eh? When indeed life becomes so uncertain at home or at school that, that children kind of dread their siblings, dread even going to school. If that is the case, of course, it's necessary that those things stop and children, if that's the case, that you fight with your brothers and sisters if now school is over, but if that happens at times and you think of what happens in September again, these kind of things are not allowed to happen among those who belong to Jesus Christ. But we're not so much focusing this afternoon on these outward signs of physically hurting other people. Our concern is what is happening at a deeper level. Because physically hurting someone else ultimately finds its origin in the heart. And we need to think about what is going on in our heart, as well as various behaviors that may fall short of murdering someone, of physically hurting someone, and yet they are very destructive. If you put it in terms of a seed and a plant, we can say that destructive actions, they are simply the ugly, poisonous plant that has been allowed to grow from a seed that was allowed to germinate and to develop in someone's heart, and eventually it showed itself. Now, as this ugly plant grew, it was already causing destruction of life along the way. And so, if we are really wanting to desire to live as redeemed people, we have to, therefore, you, you could say, go to the root of the matter. Where does it begin? Well, our scripture is helpful, catechism is helpful in pointing us to the right scripture. As for the root, the catechism identifies it as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge. Of course, in this it echoes the words of our Lord Jesus when he elaborated on the commandment, you shall not murder. He went beyond the obvious, he went down to the heart of the matter. And he said that anger and also insulting another in effect, was the same as murdering someone, making them liable to judgment. Let's think about that. Anger. You know, who has not at some point been angry at someone? Not a righteous anger, just plain angry. But what the Lord Jesus is teaching us there is that as those who belong to him, even anger is sinful. Anger makes you guilty, even if it never gets beyond your mind, even if no one ever knows that kind of anger was being played out in your mind. Anger is a breach of this commandment. Now, when it comes to insulting, well, 
That amounts to throwing verbal barbs at others meant to hurt them, to humiliate them. You know, again, it may never come to sticks and stones which may break people's bones, but words. You know, sometimes children bravely say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But that's not true. Because words, words can be like, like missiles that hurt a person. They break a person's spirit. They cause discouragement. And, and words like that, they bring separation. They bring alienation between people. Because who keeps on associating with someone who is always putting you down? You don't want that kind of company. Now we can apply this to various relationships. You know, think about it in terms of family life, parenting. With respect to parenting, you can say more harm is done to children by harsh, critical, demeaning words than by the occasional punishment. And in a marriage relationship, a husband and wife, they may never physically hurt each other, but their verbal barbs can cause wounds leading the marriage to slowly begin to bleed to death. Because if you think about it in a marriage relationship, what husband and wife feel like cuddling up to each other when the day has been filled with harsh words, when the one is treating the other like dirt. You see, in that respect, words, angry words, angry looks, whether it be between parents and children, husband and wife, they are weapons of mass destruction. They destroy home life. They destroy marriage life. Now, as anger and insults can kill marriage and family life, it can do the same to community life. That is, you could say, the family of the church. And we think here of Paul's words that we also read in Galatians chapter 5, where also he is busy in that part of his letter instructing his readers on redeemed living. He warned them not to misuse the freedom that they had received in Jesus Christ as an opportunity for the flesh, but he said, through love, serve one another. We could have read a few verses even before our passage we read there, where it says that if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Bite and devour. You know, we don't have to picture the Galatians that physically nipping at each other like a dog might nip at a person that kind of seems to threaten them. But this is this verbal nipping, verbal sniping. And if it is not stopped, it is going to kill the life of the congregation. Because there again, you see, brothers and sisters, you never have to lay hands on anyone to hurt, harm their life. But words, words can be lethal weapons. They can destroy, destroy fellowship, destroy relationships. Now, Paul's teaching to counter this danger contrasts the way of the spirit to the way of the flesh, that is, the old nature. And we also read that among the ways of the flesh that destroys life are things like enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, and dissensions and envy. Now, these are destructive in any kind of relationship because they suck the life out of those relationships. Now, keep in mind, when, when Paul wrote those words, you know, he, he spoke those especially with respect to the life 
of the church as a community, as a family of faith. Family life, church life, cannot prosper where there is such enmity. Just think about it. You know, when people hate each other, even if you think about members in your own congregation, if, if you have an issue with someone, then when you come to church on Sunday, you might even hope that you don't drive in at exactly the same time as brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so because actually you cannot look them in the eye. And you might even look around, first of all, when you find a seat. Now, where are they sitting? If they're sitting over there, you're going to sit over there because you do not want to sit beside brother or sister so-and-so. can happen if there is that animosity and you see how life is destroyed, really. You should be able to sit down beside any brother and sister in the congregation on any given Sunday. But you know, it doesn't always go that way. It's not right. We know that. We have to work on that. Even further, you know, if you know about certain brothers and sisters, well, and you don't get along with them too well because you think, well, they are kind of combative type of personalities, then you might say, well, I'm not going to go to that particular study society because brother and sister so-and-so might show up. And you know, they always want to nominate the discussion. I don't want to go there. Always ends up in fights and, 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 and hard feelings. So in that respect, you know, when these kind of feelings start to develop, we see all kind of devastating things because when a discussion does develop, it even becomes impossible to listen to the other person's point of view. Because there is the presumption that whatever the person says is wrong, and even if it is right, well, it is wrong because that particular person is saying it. You see, all kinds of tensions develop because of things happening in the heart, all kinds of destructions of the relationships. In that respect, you know, it can even happen that even a congregation or a meeting can happen that things are going well till all of a sudden people are settled for a meeting and then a certain brother or sister walks in and the rest is a bit on edge because they know that brother or sister so-and-so, well, they always have an issue with everything and there's a certain aura about them and the rest already becomes a bit fearful even more when the person asks for the floor to speak about an issue before the congregation that day. Sad. You know, these things happen. Perhaps you can recall situations like that. Hopefully, in a nice young congregation like this, everything is still going well, but these kind of situations can develop. And you don't want them to develop. You don't want to come to the point where the tension is so thick that you can cut it with a knife. So in that respect, you know, be careful also there that these kind of things, they, they are playing out in the heart, they're playing out in the mind, you could say, but words, words that come out of our mouth, they can be so destructive. Now, over against all these ways to destroy life, or at the very least, making life very miserable, even to the point that it is barely worth living, there is the way of the Spirit. The Spirit, we confess, is the Lord and giver of life. You know, we put that, it's put in that way in the Nicene Creed. And we see this when we think of all the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit and how they enhance life. Think of what Paul mentioned in Galatians. Things like love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. Now, these aspects of the gift of the Spirit, they touch our heart, and they will touch our words and our actions. Earlier, we, we mentioned kind of, you know, that, that sometimes anger emanates from a person, and almost like an aura going around the person, a dark cloud, you could say. Well, 
when it comes to a situation like that, you know, when there is that dark aura around the person, then, then children with an angry father who see the cloud around his head, they're going to make this, themselves scarce. The husband who sees his wife have an aura around her head like that, he, he's going to be walking on tiptoes. Workers are going to tread carefully around an ill-tempered foreman. But now think how different it is if rather than the dark cloud of anger, hatred, animosity, there is, there is the bright cloud of the way of the Spirit around the person. When, when a father is like that, when the children know this father, father loves the Lord and wants to walk in the way of the Lord, then they cheerfully and joyfully interact with their father. They can't wait till he comes home because he is a joy to be around. And husbands and wives, they will joyfully interact with each other when they know that around their heads there is that aura of the Holy Spirit, that joy, love, peace, patience, kindness. Yes, you want to be with people like that, not with the ones with the dark cloud, but the ones with the aura of the Holy Spirit. And even the workplace can be an enjoyable place, but also employers, you know, and also workers, all of them, they have that, that cloud of the Spirit. Even in daily work, you carry through what can be done to enhance and promote life. And congregational life will be blessed when all the members seek to emit a pleasing aroma. You know, think of that, that anointing oil that was to flow over Aaron's head and over upon his garments and down his beard upon his garments. Beautiful smelling oil. Well, when the congregation members make an effort to really want the aura of the Holy Spirit to emanate from them. And then the whole congregation gets a good aura. It even becomes a blessing in the community. People say, look at those people. They love each other. They care for each other. We want to be there because that's where something special is happening. And so, brothers and sisters, we do well to examine, you could say, what is our personal spiritual aura? Does it come across that we are spiritual wrecking balls in our relationships? And without saying a word, we just cause people to move away from us at a, in a big hurry? Or, or are people drawn to us because there is the aura of the Holy Spirit around us? Do we protect and promote life in that way? And do we, do we draw others in, even thinking about those who might be standing on the sidelines, making every effort to make them to feel part of the congregation of the community? Do we make others feel safe? Are we keeping, you could say in that respect, in step with the Holy Spirit, as Paul mentioned in Galatians chapter 5? For this is what the Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed us to do, and for this He has given us the Holy Spirit. So this is what we are to pursue in our interaction with others. Now, the aforesaid already gives us plenty to think about. But there is more to consider, namely, how to promote and protect life with respect to ourselves. And that's our second point. Now, when explaining the commandment, the catechism mentions we should not harm or recklessly endanger ourselves. Now, we should note that word, recklessly. The reality is, in normal course of life, we are going to be exposed to various dangers. But what is mentioned here really refers to dangers that can easily be avoided. And this merits our attention because we live in an age that lives by the motto of my body, 
my choice. We hear that, of course, with respect to those who think it is their right to just then kill whatever life is developing in, in the mother's womb. But when we think it through, it can be used in other contexts too, and in a way we might even have adopted it for many aspects of our own life. We can think of situations where people wish to engage in high-risk sports. You know, some people seem to thrive on the thrill of courting death, and they might say, well, it's my body, my choice. I can do what I want. Well, as redeemed people, we should know very well that my body, my choice is not a Christian principle at any time. Paul, writing to the Corinthians about sexual conduct, chapter 6, he states that we are not our own, but we have been bought with a price. It's also echoed in Lord's Day 1, where we confess that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, oldest body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 writes that our bodies are to be used as instruments of righteousness, not for immoral purposes or selfish purposes. For immoral lifestyles, they carry with them dangers to our bodies, yes, to our health. I'm used to these wires back here, but... So, anyway, you know, that all these exhortations, it's not our own body. We can't do whatever we feel like doing. Now, the catechism at this particular point refers to our Lord's response to Satan as he tempted him, for example, to jump off the top of the temple. And the Lord Jesus said that we should not put the Lord to the test. And we can see how this is also relevant to us by considering how we might expose ourselves to dangerous situations, even at times justifying it by saying, well, but I am doing this for the cause of the gospel. Just imagine if someone said, I have to go and bring the gospel to, to that war scene in Ukraine. And I'm going to go right to the front. I'm going to right stand between the Ukrainian soldiers and the Russian soldiers. I'm going to preach to them. I'm going to bring the gospel. I have to stop this senseless slaughter over there. After all, did God not promise to look after us? Did he not promise to protect those who would bring the gospel? And we might even get a bit fatalistic and say, well, if I'm meant to die, I'll die. But that's reckless. That's reckless. You know, the Apostle Paul, he could have taken that approach several times. You know, at certain points he was attacked by all kinds of people in a certain city. If he had said, well, I'm going to stay here, I have to preach the gospel. No, people have told him, Paul, you better go somewhere else before they kill you. And he himself, you could say, hightailed it out of certain places because they were going to kill him. And he simply went and preached the gospel elsewhere. He did not expect God to miraculously protect him just because he was preaching the gospel. That would have been reckless on his part. Now, as for Paul's words in Romans 13, verse 11 to 14, he talks about living as children of the day, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Now, these kind of activities, they bring dangers to one's earthly health, let alone to one's eternal health. As elsewhere he spells out 
that those who persist in such sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's living spiritually reckless and dangerous lives. To think, well, God will save me anyway. No, no, the Apostle Paul teaches, if you live in that way, you don't belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to repent. And even on a more day-to-day level, you could even say drunkenness affects one's body as it can lead to all kinds of diseases. Liver disease, for example, can lead to mental impairment, which makes one a danger to himself and to others. A sexual immorality that exposes someone to all kinds of sexually transmitted diseases. Now, of course, sinful man has been very clever. He has found all kinds of medicines to counteract also the consequences of sinful behavior. So it seems that one can sin with with all sinful abandon, but the dangers are there. Keep in mind, our bodies are not our own. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. There are many other ways of harming our bodies. You know, sometimes in that respect, it is sad to say that, that unbelievers can be more aware of that than we are, as many can kind of become almost obsessed with their health. It goes too far, you could say, yet yet there is an aspect there that they realize you have to look after your own health and well-being. But we can't, we may question their reasoning, you could say at times, but we can't disagree on the list of harmful things that have been discovered over time. You know, think of smoking. Smoking has been identified as a serious threat to health, yet Sad to say, it continues to be practiced by many in society at large and even by God's children who should be so acutely aware that this is not taking good care of the body the Lord has given to us in which to serve Him, to be used as instruments of righteousness. Now, the importance of a healthy, balanced diet has been identified. And yet, there are many, even among God's people, who eat too much, who eat too little, or they eat too many unhealthy foods. Now, if we truly believe that our body belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ, we can't keep on living by the model that suggests my body, my choice. And we do also well to reflect on our recreational activities where we go beyond the normal level of risk to life and limb. It's not our body to do with as we wish. And that motto, of my body, my choice, also is evident in the way society has accepted the whole concept of assisted suicide, or to use its more softer-sounding name, MAID, you know, medical assistance in dying, or medical aid in dying. It's actually ironic in our society, if someone commits suicide, that is seen as a tragedy, and every effort should be made to stop people from committing suicide. But if it is done with the assistance of the medical profession, all of a sudden then it is seen as a noble, heroic kind of way to help a person put an end to his or her suffering from some terrible disease. Also, it is seen even as a noble thing because you spare the health system from from great cost because you end a life early without requiring all that extensive medical care. Now, when it comes to suicide... The reality is that it does happen among God's people. In some cases, there can be mental health issues. And we need to be sensitive to brothers and sisters who deal with these kind of situations. 
that they come to, to such dark times in their lives, they just cannot see their way out of their predicament. And we make no ultimate judgments about those who do this, but we can say that it is not according to God's will. We shouldn't put God to the test. And also we have to recognize that even in this broken world, there is a lot of help to deal with the burdens of life. And we can think of the many medicines and also the people who can offer encouragement and help. And as Christians, the greatest gift is knowing that we belong to our faithful Savior Jesus Christ in life and death and also in those very dark stages that some people go through as they travel through life on this earth. You know, a psalm like Psalm 88 shows how God's children can go through very dark periods in their lives. It's not ours, however, to decide how and when our life ends. Also there, it's not a case of my body, my choice. No, we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And for Christians, as they age and as they suffer from the same debilitating diseases as others do in the world, yes, we we gladly make use of the many means available to us to alleviate suffering. But in the process of dying, though, we are not to seek an early exit, but we are to rely upon God's grace. Because you can see there is as much Christian testimony in as, as to how we die and as, as how we live. There's testimony in dying gracefully, expectantly waiting for the Lord to call us home rather than deciding I'm going to punch my own ticket out of this world when I'm ready for it. No, we gracefully wait for the Lord, also respect, expecting His grace. Now, as the foresaid gives us plenty to think about, there is more to consider, namely how to protect and promote life also with respect to our enemies. That's our last point. The Catechism finishes off the explanation of the sixth rule for redeemed life by saying we are called to do good even to our enemies. Well, the way of the flesh, the way of the old nature is to wish our enemies dead. And this merits our attention, for as Christians we are prone to the ways of the flesh in our attitude toward those with whom we disagree, even more with those whom we see as our enemies. I'm not going to spell out whom we might consider our enemy. Most likely a second thought will conjure up images of people that we know whom we consider our enemies, that we loathe you could say, with a passion. And so, in your own mind, think of the person you dislike the most as we also then work through this point and then see if there is a need for a change in your attitude and action. So what did we read in Matthew 5, verse 43 and following? It said there, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And then he gave an example of how God sends rain on the just and the unjust. And if we only love our friends, well, we are no different from the world. And if we act as the world, we will not do anything to protect and promote life, but only continue the destruction that already is evident in life throughout the world. 
You see, as redeemed people, we are to be different, like our Father is different. And this is to be shown in how we treat our enemies. We think of the example given of how Elisha told the king to feed the captured Syrian army because the king thought, now I got them. I can kill them. They'll never bother us again. Elisha said, no, don't do that. Feed them. Send them home. Paul refers to this too in Romans chapter 12. He concludes by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then we have to let these words percolate in our hearts and minds as we think about those whom we consider our enemies. We are those with whom we are in some way at odds. Is our response to them the way of the flesh, or is it the way of the Spirit? Are we only proliferating the destruction of life, or at least from our side doing our best to protect and promote life, showing the fruit of the Spirit, who is the Lord and giver of life? Now again, the aforesaid gives us plenty to think about. Also, in terms of we combine that with what we said about protecting the life of others and of ourselves. And so these are things to take home, to reflect on indeed how we are doing. And where needed, brothers and sisters, we need to repent. We need to look for forgiveness, the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We need to ask for the strength of the Holy Spirit, the renewer of life, so that we may indeed protect and promote life in every way, striving to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Amen.